friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today I'm on the phone with a friend and uh, it's got me smiling from ear to ear. This friend is Nina Simons and uh, Nina has just published a book called Nature, Culture and the Sacred. A Woman Listens for Leadership. Nina Simons is co-founder of Bioneers. She is a social entrepreneur, passionate about reinventing leadership, restoring the feminine, and co-creating a healthy and equitable future for all life on Earth. An advocate for social and environmental healing, she speaks and teaches internationally on leadership and transformational social change and is dedicated to the value of creating truly diverse collaborations and connections among issues, leaders, and movements. Hi, Nina. Hi, Joanna. Wow, was that me? <laughs> that's, that's It's a little highfalutin for me at the moment, but thank you. <laughs> well, why don't we start because one of my one of my ideas was to start by asking you how it feels to have that book published. But I want to add to that, why don't you tell us because that's so important. Who do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I might be able to wrap that all into one response. Let's see. Wow. Um, I, I, who do I think I am? Well, I know myself on the deepest level to be a soul who came here for the purpose of helping restore equilibrium between the masculine and the feminine principles and uh, to be um, a source of healing by providing connective tissue among areas that our culture has seen as separate that I see as part of uh, an inherently and sacred interconnected whole. So that's who I know myself to be. Mm-hmm. And how does it feel to have this book out in the world? Well, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I think I have to answer from the chorus of Nina's because mm-hmm. I have many different responses to having it out in the world. For one thing, I'm so grateful that uh, my friend, and maybe our friend, I'm not sure, Mayumi Oda, loaned me her gorgeous image oh. for the cover of the book. Yes. And so I, um, I'm i loving having a book out there that does feel like, you know, even though I've edited a book before, that was very much of my vision and heart and spirit. This one, because it's authored by me, has a different quality. Mm-hmm. to it. And um, and I'm finding myself having a curious relationship to it with respect to time. Huh. Because in many ways, the book traces the arc of my um, journey of understanding my own assignment or what I'm here for over the past 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. And so I thought when I was putting it together that it was like I was putting a closed parenthesis on a chapter of my life. But now that it's suddenly fully humanifested, 
if you will. <laughs> it feels like it's it's um, it's got a new life in present time, and I think what I'm seeing from it. One of my recent revelations, Joanna, that I'm intrigued with mm -hmm. is that I was sitting with a friend recently who invited me to have lunch with her, and she said, I'm, I want to do my Ph.D. dissertation on ecofeminism. And when I read your book, I realized that's who you are. And so I want to interview you about ecofeminism. Mm -hmm. And when she first brought that up, I had this sort of, slightly confused response, like, I don't know, over the years, many people have asked me what I think about ecofeminism, and I've always thought of ecofeminism as defining or describing the intersection between women and nature. But when I looked it up in the, thanks to this woman asking me, mm -hmm. I looked it up on the internet, and what it said was, women, nature, and justice. And I thought, oh, how interesting. And her inquiry to me was she said, why do you think that as a concept, this has not entered the mainstream in any way? And in fact, when I, I, I got very curious about it, and when I looked it up online, what I saw was that there were academics writing about it and having some occasional small conferences about it, and there were gatherings of Wiccan women, mm -hmm. but there wasn't anything sort of in popular culture. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder why that nexus of women and nature and justice, which really is, I, I mean, if I imagine myself right now, how I see myself is sort of standing in the middle of a triangle of those three things maybe at the sacred in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, yes, yes, yes. You know, and so I'm intrigued with the question of why hasn't ecofeminism made it into popular culture? And I'm seeing myself as, oh, that's a, a new and interesting sort of part of my assignment, perhaps. I don't know. But I'm wondering about it, and I'm listening for cues and clues. Well... From reading your book, I have a better idea of what an ecofeminist would be, mm. and it's different for each one, but from your book, uh, I have gleaned that it would be a woman who would be not at peace, but at in the flow of her complementarity, her diversity, her inner complementarity, diversity, and her paradoxes. Mm. Oh, that's lovely. And, and, and I got, I really got that from your book. So, mm. so what I would invite you to speak to me about is how have you become an eco-feminist from your communion with nature, mm. from observing, uh, not even observing, from being, from being inside of nature. Mm. Well, what an interesting question not the way that one conventionally imagines mm -hmm. because I came to my relationship with nature from being a child of artists and I remember being in school I actually left college a few degrees short of a degree a few credits short of a degree because of how much I hated science And here I have spent 30 years of my life shepherding an organization that's about relationship to environment and nature. Um, so, so in many ways it was not, 
what I ever anticipated my life would be. I think that I have, hmm, I have long been guided by something that I sometimes name as relational intelligence, mm-hmm. which, um, which includes the wisdom of my senses and my intuition and um, my empathy and what resonates for me. And sometimes it's hard to describe, but um, I, I do, I have practiced for quite some time listening to the guidance of my heart mm-hmm. and trusting that what both delights me and causes me to feel, to fall in love, offers me guidance on where I should, where I should take my next clear step. So I think, I think in that way, I feel like an emissary from, from Venus, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, and that's a lot of what has guided the major decisions and turning points in my life. And so I, you know, I remember early on having a a guide or a, a counselor who said to me, you know, our culture has this false notion that you're going to graduate from college and then there's a straight line while you follow your career path and then you retire. She, she said, you need to throw out that idea altogether because your life will never be like that. And she kind of drew this very squiggly line that looked like a river and said, you know, your life will be like this and it will change direction and it will, there will be branches. And I found it, I think of it often as being like a tree, like mm-hmm. something calls me and a new branch <laughs> opens up. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, currently I'm in this deep inquiry about racial equity and, and, and how I can become more adept as, a, as a, an instrument of healing in that realm. But, um, and, and as a, a person who creates connective tissue, so, um, and I've had the incredible good fortune, Joanna, of studying from a whole lot of mentors, you know, and many of them didn't even know that they were mentoring me. <laughs> you know, that's, that's one of the things I love about life. Like, Alice Walker was mentoring me from her books way before I ever met her. Beautiful. And, you know, and, and Carrie Tempest Williams, the same. So I've been lucky enough to have many mentors who are um, very astute observers of nature. And I think, you know, for me, and, and the other thing about all my mentors is that I've been lucky enough to enjoy 30 years of mentorship from indigenous peoples. And I think from them and from living close to nature, what I've come to realize is that, for me, nature is the sacred, and there's no difference. So when I, when I pray to the divine, I'm praying to Mother Life. And I don't think of it as a, as a deity up there somewhere. Um, I think of it as a living, sacred entity that we are a part of. And so, you know, so I guess... That's what's informed my my journey, and and really, I, I think the book has given me an opportunity to see this path as going from first becoming in service to nature, and you know, to diversity and to uh, indigenous wisdom, and then discovering my identity as a woman, and oh, what does that have to do with everything? And going on a long journey about that. And now discovering sort of my identity as a person who in this culture is seen as white. And what does that have to do with how I live and, and how I bring myself to this gigantic moment of reinvention that we all find ourselves in? I don't know if that answered your question, but... Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sure you've heard it before, you've come up with my, my 
my mind came up with biofeminism. Oh, that's nice. Yes. I don't know that I have heard of it. It's just the, the question from that word, biofeminism, and uh, it felt right because when I'm listening to you, it seems to me that the thread that ignites you amongst the different mentors is this biofeminism that these women are, women are able, Terry Tempest Williams, uh, are able to connect with the land and, and find the language to absolutely sensually and intellectually be with it. I think that's true, although for me, both Alice Walker and Terry Tempest Williams really weave a third thread into the braid, which mm -hmm. is culture, mm. right? Because for each of them, if you think of any of Alice Walker's books, she's highly political, yes. and Terry's for that matter as yes, well. Yes. They're both highly political. You know, Terry has written a lot about indigenous people and about her Mormon upbringing and about right. the role of art right. in her own learning, even though she brings this naturalist lens to it. And Alice Walker, I feel a great resonance with because I think of her as I think of myself as being sort of a culture doctor, you know? Yeah. So, yes. So, but I love that. It's, it's not a word I've heard before. You may have just coined it, and I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about and, and feeling into this... Um, this inquiry, as you say, about how to be on a on a on an equal place with people of color. On a, I mean, I I am so ignorant about this. And while I, while I'm sharing with you, I I would love it if you uh, would speak about how your heart is opened to making less mistakes, which is what I tend to do. Ooh. well, I think you know, Joanna. The first thing I would say is that my heart is not embracing making less mistakes. Yes. My heart is embracing the willingness to um, risk and make more mistakes. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. But I'm, what I'm seeing in myself is that being a product of a culture that has racism so deeply embedded mm -hmm. in it means that we all have racism. My, my current teacher is a woman named Robin D'Angelo, and she, she wrote a book called White Fragility, and she says, we all have racism coming out our pores all the time, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and so we kind of can't help but make mistakes. But I think what is motivating me is that I've been, I've had the experience of convening diverse groups of women leaders mm -hmm. over the last mm, 14, 15 years. And there have been a number of times in those retreats where I've had this glimpse of what's possible when a group of women of all colors and backgrounds and classes and ages and orientations can actually stand for and with each other in a truly loving and accepting place. I've come to believe that it's one of the greatest untapped resources in the world is the capacity women have to grow each other's leadership and um, to accelerate each other's learning. And so I've had these little tastes of 
you know, what Dr. Martin Luther King referred to as beloved community. Mm-hmm. And those tastes have been so intoxicating to me at, that as I witness the kinds of ruptures and breakages that, are, that have happened through history and continue to happen, even with the Women's March and, you know, current efforts to bring together women in common cause, I feel really called to address why those breaks keep happening and to see how, you know, as, I, as I've really come to understand how much it means to walk through this world with the kinds of privileges and the kinds of benefits, frankly, that white skin gives us. Um, and, and I've seen women whose leadership I admire and am in awe of up close and recognized that the reason they have asthma is because not enough white people are standing on behalf of ending white supremacy. You describe that beautifully in your book, actually. Oh, good. Yes, the parts. Yeah, it's a, you know, it was a heartbreaking moment because um, it was a time when the whole issue of equity and justice sort of moved from my head to my heart. And, uh, and I, think, I think I called it piercing the shell of privilege, mm-hmm. you know, because there's this way that, like, I had spent most of my life until that time, you know, reading in the paper about, you know, the increased um, heart disease and asthma and, you know, lead poisoning and all kinds of horrible physical health diseases in low-income communities of color. And it's precisely because we live in a culture that structures it so that the most toxic corporations situate themselves there, and then the people bear the brunt of the health impacts, um, including, of course, indigenous people. And, um, and so, you know, it just got very real to me, and I realized that in many ways, I think we are in a moment when learning about resilience and what works to traverse very bumpy times mm-hmm. is of very high value. And really, the people of color in this country have more experience at surviving very bumpy times and being under attack and being challenged, you know, to not have clean air or water or food. And honestly, I feel like we all need to go into an apprenticeship with them. But that's not a fair way to approach it either, because actually they need some repair, and we are responsible for offering some repair. So what does that look like? So I don't know. I mean, you know, I once heard Van Jones describe that for anyone really entering into racial equity work, it's a little bit like walking through a room full of garden rakes. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. that if you walk through a room where dozens of garden rakes are strewn on the floor, there's almost no way you can get from one end of the room to the other without stepping on a rake and having it smack you in the head. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think it just becomes more important and valuable and you know to me to take the risks and know that being smacked in the head isn't going to kill me um but it is killing a lot of other people that i care about you know the systems are killing them the cops are killing them you know the corporations are killing them and so in in many ways i feel like we're living in such a divided country where the people of color in low-income communities and the indigenous people have experienced living in a war zone for decades. And many of the rest of us have not. And we're just starting to wake up to that because climate is bringing the war zone, climate and politics mm-hmm. are bringing the war zone closer and closer. Well, every day it, it feels to me like 
we're at a, a breaking point and um, politically, culturally, um, and um, I just wonder every day when I wake up, what can I do? What can I do? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have given my life for this and I would give my life for this in a minute. As you say, the children and grandchildren. But I'd like to get back. There's a sentence in your book that, to me, strikes so simple. Diversity is about resilience and survival. Yeah. That's like an ex. That's like E equals M C square. <laughs> I mean, to me, there is such a simplicity and. It's so profound, like, mm. instead of pushing away those who have survived great trauma and tragedy, you speak to it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I do believe that. And, um, you know, one of the things that I learned, I just recently took a, a three-day training about race and about actually about see it was called seeing the racial waters and one of the very striking things that the teacher Robin D'Angelo did was she showed a series and everyone in the class was white and she's white and she showed a series of images of like key moments in a person's life graduating high school, graduating college, getting married, you know, um, these events. And, and as we saw them, what became apparent, strikingly apparent, was that they were all white people. And she says, you know, part of how a racialized system affects us is that it is normalized for us to go through our entire lives in a relatively segregated way and never realize what we're missing. You know, and I found myself reflecting on the wedding that my partner husband and I had 30-some years ago and realizing I was, I was sort of scanning all the faces to see if there was anyone non-white there. Yeah, yeah. You I know, remember. and it was, it was kind of horrifying to me. But, um, but... So, and, and I come at this, you know, it's funny because I first really learned about diversity from working with Seeds of Change, this biodiversity seed company. Right. And, and I fell madly in love with diversity, um, you know, in terms of food and flowers and corn and, and realized that, you know, when there is, when there is a monoculture that, uh, a society has become dependent on, and it gets attacked by either a weather event or a pest or a mold, and, uh, and, and the food supply is threatened, what they do is they go back to what they call the wild relatives, and, and they breed resistance back into the food plant by going back to its roots. And on some level, I think we're just, we're in a time, I mean, it's funny, you said E equals MC squared, and I've been thinking about recently how David Bohm said yeah. that, um, that E equals MC squared doesn't describe everything, <laughs> right? And that, and that it's not just about energy and matter, mm -hmm. that actually if you're going to describe how life works, it's energy and matter and meaning, Mm. And we're in such a meaning-making moment, you know, where everything is up for review and everything is threatened. Sweet. I mean sweet. 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 <laughs> <Take a> tweet. <laughs> tweet. Tweet. No sweet tweet. <laughs> but, but I have a challenge for you here. Uh, a big word for you is congruence, a big, yes. uh, big moral stance for your own being. So 
speak to us about congruence and meaning. Huh. Huh. Um, well, congruence is really an important word for me, and I think it's, you know, it's been an important learning for me to recognize that the way that nature reconciles difference is to create spirals. Mm. So, for instance, when an ocean wave hits a bunch of seaweed, the seaweed actually spirals to adapt to the pressure. Or when you put cold milk in your hot coffee, it spirals because of the cold and the hot hitting each other. And, and so I think about this spiral, and I think about, you know, how there's a legend from my people, from the Jewish tradition, that says that before every soul is born, they know their assignment. And they know why they're coming to incarnate here on Earth. And then, in the course of being born, we forget, so that, you know, we arrive newborn without a clue. Um, but if we're focused and persevering, we can find our way back to that assignment. And I think of that assignment as being the central, the center of the spiral. And that when I look for meaning, I mean, our world is so fractured, and there are so many breaks in the cloth of our relationship to ourselves, to each other, and to the, to the earth, to the living earth, and to the cosmos even, that in many ways, for me, the challenge of meaning-making at this time is identifying and articulating the unifying narrative that reminds us or invites us in the most potent way possible to reimagine ourselves as part of this cosmic dance and to recognize that we each carry divinity within us and we each carry a very specific um, thread in this tapestry that's needed to remake the world right now. How's that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> It takes me back to... Uh, a practical subject I wanted to uh, that's in your book is so it's been said for a long time that uh, do what you love and that that'll be that'll be a good life hmm. you speak about what you what you do what you really really love and your work will spring from there And uh, so the example, your example being Bioneers, that you had your, your day job and then you did Bioneers for 10 years. Uh, I related to this because very late in my life or very late, <laughs> relatively, uh, I came to this podcasting stuff, which totally fascinates me. And no matter how poor I am, Uh, I do it. I do it almost before I. I mean, I pay whatever needs to be paid almost before I eat, and it keeps me happy. Yep. So I love it. If you would talk about that, and also with with this thing in mind that people say, "Well, what I love, you know, it doesn't give me the money I need." Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, money is a tough thing. Yeah, but, but I do think that we are in a transition. I see it as a transition into the relationship economy um, from an economy that's about uh, counting things or amassing stuff to a new economy that's really about how strong is the web of connections and relationships that holds each of us. For me, That's the only security that I really feel like I have. Um, I, I, don't, I don't believe my security is related to money anymore. And, you know, my sense is, I mean, I've been studying this thing about leadership and purpose for a long time, yes. and my sense is that the place where we become unstoppable is when we can identify 
the nexus between our gifts and talents, what totally lights us up and, and gives us great joy, and a need for reinvention in the world. Mm-hmm. And I believe that nexus is the place that's unstoppable. And I guess, you know, part of my experience has been that um, <laughs> I used to imagine that leadership could happen without sacrifice, and I'm not so sure that's true anymore. Because the story you were reflecting on, Joanna, you know, the truth is that for eight years, basically, I did pioneers in my in my spare time on top of my day job. Yeah. Because I loved it and I was committed to it. Now, thankfully, I was relatively young and I had a, I had a lot of energy at the time, but. You know, it's not something I would wish on anybody. I, my day job still managed to be things that I cared about and I liked and I did get some energy from. I think we all have to be careful not to work at things that deplete us but don't give us energy, you know. Um, and, and in a way, it's crazy to work two jobs for eight years. But in reflection, I think it was that very perseverance that made it that made it possible for the universe to then surprise us with the resources to be able to quit our day jobs and start doing it full time. Mm-hmm. I think that there, you know, in my life anyway, there has been a quality of pursuing a vision that's something that I care more deeply about than anything, really, which is a a regenerative and healed and peaceful and equitable world through a path that I really believe in. And even though over the last 30 years, Bioneers has probably had a half dozen near-death experiences, (laughs) really, you know, where we didn't know if we would be able to make payroll and it was horribly scary and having other people depend on you is even harder than just trying to support yourself and Mm -hmm. all that, you know, and yet I do feel like there has been a quality of faith and prayer and magic and, and mother life affirming over and over again, no, we're not ready to let this die, that's carried us through. And I mean, you know, one of the things I think I talk about in the book, which continues to delight me, is this notion of practical magic. I was good. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I told this story in the book, but there was a time when pioneers needed a half a million dollars, and we needed it really badly, and we knew for about four months leading up to the end of the year that we had to find this money, but we had no idea where it was going to come from. And we had asked all of our high donors at the time, and they had all said no. And I was visiting with a woman who uh, is a remarkable teacher who comes to Santa Fe sometimes, a woman named Oki Simony Forrest. And she's uh, an indigenous woman from the Haudenosaunee Mm -hmm. tribe who has also studied in Mongolia and works in Chiapas. And and, um, I was doing a session with her. And at the end of the session, almost like an afterthought, I said, okay, is there anything that you can tell me that might help me to attract resources to pioneers? And she looked at me and she said, yes. I'll teach you how to program a crystal. And if it had been anybody other than (laughs) Oki, Joanna, I would have burst out laughing. I know. Right? I mean, it sounded so airy-fairy to me and new agey and ridiculous, but it was Oki, and Oki is none of those things. Uh And so I just, I just refrained from laughing and I, and I took down the instructions that she gave me very carefully, and I followed them to the letter, and honest to goodness, on December 19th, I got a phone call from a woman who had said no previously, who said, I heard in my meditation this morning that I should give you what you asked for, Mm -hmm. and so I'm wiring a half a million dollars to buy an ears. 
it was the most amazing thing. And so, you know, I offer that because really, I think, you know, all of us get caught between either woo-woo dilettantism <laughs> or, you yeah. know what I mean, or, or um, being really skeptical and dismissing these things out of turn. And I think that anything that we ritualize and practice with clear enough intention over and over and over again religiously every single day can manifest. And it doesn't mean, you know, that I'm proselytizing for the gift or anything, but I do think that practical magic exists and that ritual creates relationship and anything we want to change in ourselves or our lives, we can make up rituals. That's been my experience, and do them over and over again, and things change. Well, although I was um, I was deeply imprinted with a Cartesian yeah. uh, system. I'm I'm completely with you, and I read something that I thought was very interesting this morning. It was. It was a little thing that came up on the computer about uh, what what is what what is the trick for highly intelligent people, and the the answer was that they imagine reality differently huh. than the consensus reality. Wow! Yeah, I love that. And that clicked, and it. Yes clicked as an encouragement yes. and, and, it, and it sounded practical enough. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, another thing that I've been thinking about a lot is that there's so much that's destructive happening in the world right now that for many of us, we're either focused on the politics and the news or resisting all the bad stuff. And, you know... Um, there's a beautiful video that people can see on the Bioneers.org website okay. um, from Patrice Cullors, who is one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. And she's also a theater person. Mm -hmm. And when she spoke last October, she basically led a meditation where she invited people to close their eyes and imagine sense by sense the world we want. And it was so lovely because she said, okay, what are the sounds you're hearing? And what do the streets look like? And what kind of nature is nearby? And what's the food like? And how does it feel to take care of yourself there? And what do people do for work? And, you know, and, and basically at the end of it, she said, now I want to challenge and invite everyone to do that every day. Because imagining the world we want is part of how we're going to get there. And it's beautiful. I love that you read that yeah. this morning. It's cool. It, it just feels really right to me. Well, it also feels really related to the practice of mindfulness, right? And of, and of sort of disengaging from... Um, the world of matter so much and uh, and investing in the imaginal state because I do think we're all transforming. You know, I read, I read recently that 80% of all species in nature metamorphize, hmm. including humans because they consider it biologically a metamorphosis when we go from the birth from from inside our mother's belly to out into the world, right? We millions. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> to uh, breathing air. That's a metamorphosis. Yeah, yeah. So let's metamorphize together. Yes, <laughs> yes. Let's metam. Let let me say the word metamorphize. <laughs> that that's difficult for a French speaking person. <laughs> I guess, but not to imagine. Not to imagine, sweetheart, <laughs> yes. So perhaps we're coming to winding, uh, spiraling around here. And um, maybe I should ask you 
what are the qualities of non-gender gender biased leadership? Mm. Well, <clears throat> I am continually grasping to find good words for this. Mm -hmm. I sometimes call it full spectrum leadership or um inwardly I think of it as the dance of the sun and moon mm -hmm. within ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um I think that the way that we are all reinventing leadership involves leading from the inside out. So instead of uh, needing a graduate degree or a fancy job title or a big salary or an inheritance to consider ourselves leaders, I think we all have to lead with our own unique mm, gifts and vision in the area of life that we are called to and um, and not imagine that we have to do it alone because none of us can do all that's needed alone. So we're reinventing leadership to be collaborative and to be a relay race, if you will, and to recognize that we all need cycles of activity and rest And we all need uh, downtime to recharge. And that the feminine flourishes in spaciousness. Mm -hmm. And we are all so conditioned by a masculinized culture to be hyperproductive and hyperbusy and not to give ourselves enough rest and to be so in service to the outer world that we stop tending to our inner world. So I think the new leadership involves a recognition that we are each of immeasurable value as instruments of change, and therefore we have to balance our care for the world with our care for ourselves um, and be able to draw from all of our human capacities, you know, be able to focus and persevere and be vector-like when we need to and be able to um, empathize and be compassionate and relate uh, in, in so many ways uh, when we need to do that. And, and I think to lead with relationship first before task, so yes. with anyone we're partnering with, Checking in as a whole human being before you start working together really helps. Um, and it's a great ongoing inquiry. I don't pretend to know any answers. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm offering workshops if folks are interested, and they can find out about them on my website at ninasimons.com. And Bioneers is a magical place. Yes. So please check it out for podcasts besides this one. Yes, yes. And we will promote this one, of course. <laughs> Wonderful. And I look forward to it. And, uh, oh, I don't know. I mean, I think we have to stop thinking of leadership as yeah. a power over and think of it as a power with and a power to, you know, so that I, I realized when I started being called a leader, I hated it. And I thought, oh, no, don't put that label on me. I don't aspire to that. And then I had to really um, peel away and understand what do I think leaders are. And I realized I thought of leaders as dominators, you know, mm, yes. and I didn't want to be that. Yes. And none of us wants to be that. So I think we're all called to be leaders right now. I think the earth is calling us really loudly and ringing off the hook. And, um, and I hope we can all respond to the best and in our own unique ways to that call while tending for the beauty and uniqueness of the creatures that each of us are. Hmm. Well, you know, it's very, very useful because you prompted me, your presence prompted me to ask myself and reading the book prompted me to ask myself because that Each one of us is a leader, and so I went, well, what do I lead with? And I got, I lead with intimacy. Yes. Beautiful. Boom. It's I think you do. 
I think you also lead with a very special quality of inquiry. Mm, I think you have a real gift for asking deep questions and for co-creating, for creating a field of intimacy. I think that's totally true. And, and for um, enriching the field of meaning-making. Beautiful. Thank you. That's Thank how I think of Future Primitive. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. And the book is called Nature, Culture, and the Sacred. And it speaks, and it speaks to you. Mm, thank you. Okay. Okay. And I wish I could share with everyone, I have two dogs sleeping right near me. Oh, and they look like frickin' frack. They look like the yin and the yang. And they're so happy, and they're just sacked out in this blissful creature state. So may we all have that kind of quality of rest. <laughs> Thank you, Nina. Thank you, Joanna. Much love. Oh, much, much, much love and kisses. 